to Goodwin. Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, photojournalist David Bacon on working Coachella, images of the farm worker community of the Coachella Valley. Labor historian Julie Green on Woody Guthrie's New Year's resolutions, plus on Labor History in Two. The year was 1914. Two men were killed during a grocery store robbery in Salt Lake City, Utah. Their murders were blamed on Joe Hill, a Swedish-American labor activist, songwriter, and member of the IWW. Here's the show. California from Mexico you come to the Sacramento Valley to toil in the sun your wife and seven children they're working everyone and what Will you be giving to your brown-eyed children of the sun? David Bacon is a photojournalist, author, political activist, and union organizer who's focused on labor issues, particularly those related to immigrant labor. He's written several books and numerous articles on the subject, and he's got a photo exhibit opening today called Working Coachella, Images of the Farmworker Community of the Coachella Valley. I caught up with David earlier this week to talk about his work and tell us the stories behind a few of the photographs in the exhibit. You can see some of the photographs on our website, laborheritage.org, and on our Facebook page. Just search for Labor Heritage Foundation. David Bacon, thank you so much for joining us. I thought we could start out by just sort of talking about what the show is about, how it came to be, and then you could take us through uh, some uh, some of the key images. Sure. Well, the show uh, consists of photographs of farm workers um, 
They span a period of about 30 years and of people who live and work in the Coachella Valley. The Coachella Valley is located in Southern California, about 100 miles north of the border with Mexico, at the edge of the Salton Sea, which is one of the lowest points in the continental US. And it's a very important agricultural valley because it is where the struggle for the union um, has been really the hardest and the most you know, hotly fought. Um, the famous Delano grape strike of 1965 didn't actually start in Delano, it started in Coachella by a group of radical Filipinos um, led by men named Larry and Leong, and then who found common cause with Cesar Chavez when the strike moved north into the Central Valley with Cesar Chavez and the National Farm Worker Association. So the Coachella Valley is a place that is important historically and it's also important in the present because of the environmental problems that people are suffering from because of the drying out of the Salton Sea and the problems that that poses. And we could talk about that when we see some of the photographs. Um, the show is sponsored and actually was really on the initiative of a new organization in Riverside County, which is where Coachella is. Um, called the Civil Rights Institute of Inland Southern California. And so this organization, which is was set up uh, to defend the civil rights of um, people of color, of women, of LGBTQ people, of um, people in general in um, the Coachella Valley and in the inland area of, of California, inland being east of Los Angeles. Um, their idea was to show what the working lives of a very important community, the farm working community of the Coachella Valley were like so that people could understand that and see what sort of challenges people face in terms of their working lives, in terms of their union struggles, in terms of their civil rights, who people are and see this visually. So that's the purpose of showing the photographs. You've been taking these photographs, I think you said for 30 years. Yes, and actually it goes back even before that because in the 1970s, I was an organizer for the United Farm Workers and spent some years in the Coachella Valley. Um, I was a union organizer for about 20 years. And when I began doing the work that I do now and have been doing for over three decades, um, that work being uh, as a writer and a journalist and a photographer, um, one of the first things I wanted to do was to show what I already knew. Um, and that, and one of the most important parts of it was my own experience um, in the Coachella Valley, helping workers to organize um, the first immigration raid that I really saw close up um, happen to workers who were working in the palm trees, in the date palms in the Coachella Valley. And that had a profound influence on me. Um, it made me an immigrant rights activist for the rest of my life. Um, the, the kind of work that people do is also very dramatic to look at. Um, growing dates is um, only in Coachella, really. Our dates grown in North America, um, and it's a crop that came over from North Africa and the Middle East about 100 years ago. And so the work that people do in the date palms especially um, is very dramatic. People go up high into these trees that are 40 feet high and they walk around on the crowns of the trees doing various operations that it takes to get a crop of dates to the harvest. 
Um, and the other big crop in the Coachella Valley are grapes. And so um, I wanted to show what what it was like to work um, in these two crops, what people's lives were like as, as workers. And so the, the photographs are, are trying to kind of give you an intimate feeling of that. And that comes out of you know my own experience and my own respect for those workers. When when I worked as an organizer, we actually did help um, date workers to organize themselves into the union, which they did. And um, that was one of the, again, it was a very important experience for me. And I wanted to go back and, and show in photographs kind of what the working lives of these workers was like. You've been an organizer and, as you say, a, a journalist. Uh, but I think for, for most folks, your photographs are, are iconic. And can you talk about how you, you came uh, to photography and why your particular style? Well, it was actually, it grew out of the organizing work that I did. Um, in the last years, when I was an organizer, we would organize, I was working for the Ladies Garment Workers Union and for the Molders Union, which is a union for foundry workers. Um, and so we had a lot of strikes. And actually, that's what I did as an organizer more than anything else was organize strikes and struggles against plant closures. And so I would go out there with a the camera and take pictures of us, you know, workers and strikers on the picket line and hand them out to people. And um, we joke around and say, well, you know, take this back to your family, show them what it looks like, you know, you know, 20 years from now, you'll show your grandkids that you stood up and, and here's the, the photograph that is the proof of that. Um, and over the over the years, I began to realize that these were photographs that had not just this utilitarian value of kind of validating and legitimizing um, for people themselves what they, what they were doing and also helping to get support for it, um, but that it was a documenting some very important social phenomena that were happening. Um, the migration of people from Mexico, especially, um, was, you know, th these were photographs of immigrant workers, Central American workers, Mexican workers, workers from the Philippines. So it was a photo, it was photography that documented the migration of people. And actually, as it sort of took over my life, which is what it did, um, I began getting more and more interested in the, documenting the process of migration itself. And so I went to the border, went to the you know communities that people were coming from in Mexico or the Philippines or wherever, and trying to kind of show in words because I would interview people as well too. And and you know I did several books that were a combination of photographs and oral histories of people so that we could understand the migration process through the voices and the images of um, people themselves. So the photographs were in black and white partly because I started working during the era of film before digital photography. And so in the era of film, you had to choose. You either put color film in your camera or you put black and white film in your camera. And I won't say I never took color photographs. In fact, I still do from time to time, but um, my preference was for black and white. And that's because I think it has a very high emotional value. It ha It's very dramatic. And in some ways by, um, removing the color, you kind of create a feeling of immediacy in the image that is, I think, in some ways, kind of harder to ignore. You know, we're surrounded by millions of images that we absorb every day. And so 
to have an image that sort of sticks in your mind, you have to think about it and work at it. And I think that black and white um, helps to do that. But, you know, that being said, that's an aesthetic choice on, on my part. Other people do very dramatic and, and beautiful work in color. Um, but it's just the, the path that I took. This is Carmen Rodriguez from El Cafecito del Día. At LACLA, we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. And you're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. We're talking this hour with photojournalist David Bacon about his photo exhibit, Working Coachella, which opens today at the Civil Rights Institute in Riverside, California. Another hallmark, I, I would say, of your photography, and, and I think you hinted it in, in the fact that uh, a lot of times you're doing interviews, but they're very intimate, and, and it, they speak to me of somebody who is not just sort of parachuting in. They They seem to be from almost a fly in the wall. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that, the process of taking these photographs? Well, yes, and I, th I think that's a very important issue right now, especially um, because it has to do, in my mind, with what our role is as artists and, and journalists, that we're not outside observers. We are workers. We're part of the working class here. And um, so we need to participate in the world and part of that participation is through the content that we produce, the photographs, the writing, the interviews. But it has to have, in, in the work that I do, it has to have a connection with the social movements, that, especially the movements for social justice of our time. And so these photographs, they don't get produced from nowhere. They happen because of my own participation as a photographer and a writer in the social movements that I'm documenting. So, you know, the Coachella photographs are a good example of that because they go back to my own experience as an organizer with the United Farm Workers. But, um, you know, the work that I've done as far as documenting farm workers um, is done in cooperation with other organizations. Like the there's an organization of indigenous migrants from Mexico called the Frente Indígena de Organizaciones Binacionales. Um, we work together and we have for over two decades. And so the photographs are also the purpose of taking the photographs is to help these social movements grow. And, um, you know, I'm just sort of taking my place as an organizer. You know, I, I kind of look, everybody stands on the shoulders of other people, right? And I stand on the shoulders of people like Otto Hegel and Hansel Meath from the 30s, but in particular, civil rights photographers like Bob Fish. And Bob, um, he's, he did an interview once, and I, it's stuck in my mind forever. And he said, you know, um, I, for me, taking, taking up the camera was part of organizing. And I did this organizing work all the rest through the rest of my life. And, and that's the way I feel about it, too. You know, in some ways, I never stopped being an organizer. I just didn't do it through sitting in house meetings and convincing workers to go on strike. No, I do it through the work as, as a photographer and as a journalist. But it's very important for us to participate and to not fall for this idea that we have to be um, outsiders 
or that this kind of false idea of neutrality or objectivity. I don't see how you can look at the world and the injustice in it and be neutral or objective about it. That's a lie. Um, so I think we have to look at how we participate and how the work that we do gets used and be very conscious about it, trying to ensure that what we do gets used for the purpose of moving our, our world forward. So that's you know, kind of how I look at it. And just a technical question before we uh, get into looking at the actual photographs. Um, so I'm sure you've switched from from film to digital. Uh, can you talk about the pluses and minuses or differences, maybe more accurately? Well, um, the one of the advantages of film was that it was a slower process, and also you know you put a roll of film in your camera and you've got 36 exposures, and so um, before you have to change rolls, so it slows you down. You concentrate on each image um, in a way that, that you don't have to with a digital camera. I think the one of the drawbacks of, of digital work or the temptations is that you just shoot lots and lots of images and sort of play the numbers and think, well, one of them is gonna be good. Um, and sometimes that works, but I think that in coming from the era of film, you come from a tradition where you had to pay more attention. If you go back even further than me in the role film, um, you have photographers of the generation of the 30s who had to put individual pieces of film into the camera for each exposure that they took. Um, so it makes you concentrate on the image. It makes you concentrate on what you're taking a picture of and also what your relationship is with the person in front of the camera because you know you have to have you have to talk to them, they're there. You know, you can't just, you know, be hidden all the time. Um, so that's, you know, I think something that I've tried to carry through into digital work, and that is to be conscious of the image itself and try and look at carefully what's there. It's not to say that you don't work fast, even in film days, you have to work fast. And so, you know, if I'm taking photographs of somebody who's working in a field and I'm kind of walking backwards and talking to the person and they're working and moving forward, you know, you can't really, you have to, you have to work pretty quickly, but you still try to be conscious of, of what's there. Um, you know, the, the tools of digital photography like Photoshop, especially for instance, um, are really based on what we used to do in the darkroom. You know, controlling the basic elements of a photograph, exposure, um, focus, contrast, um, all of these things we learned how to do in the darkroom in a very kind of mechanical way. And of course it took time to do that. Um, Photoshop took those tools and they kind of put them on steroids and in a way that's wonderful you know you can do things in photoshop that we couldn't do in the darkroom or it would have taken us an awful long time to do it in the darkroom and you can do it um pretty quickly but if you know what film did and if you know what a darkroom did and what you could do in a darkroom i think it helps you to understand what um how the tools are, are sort of set up and what the controls are and i think that's very important for photographers because photography is a craft and we have to pay attention to it and study it and practice it and and exchange ideas about it and get good at it. And so knowing where the tools came from and what their purpose is, I think it helps us to do that. And so the transition from, from film to digital photography 
You know, I was a bit of a latecomer. You know, I didn't really start using a digital camera until maybe 2005, and the technology had been around for a while by that time. And in a way, I was so forced to do it. In a way, I, the AFL-CIO forced me to do it because I got an assignment one year to take pictures of uh, Richard Gephardt and um, what was the guy's name, Dean, that when they were candidates for president. And there were some um, interview sessions that the were organized by the labor council in san francisco and i got a call from washington saying we need some pictures you know go and take some pictures of what's happening there and then you know, the person who gave me the assignment he said and i want you to send us these pictures by the end of the day so don't even think about shooting film if you can't send me digital images um then forget about it. we're going to find somebody else and at that point i had to go out and buy my canon 10d and take digital images and send them the images that they wanted. So, but that's sort of how it, how the transition happened for me. But, you know, the more I, you know, took pictures with a digital camera, the more I could appreciate uh, some of the things that, that you could do with it. One of the most important things that you can do, especially now with mirrorless cameras, is that you can show the person that you're taking pictures of, you can show the image to them right away. And that creates a, a certain, bond between you and the person that you're um that you're shooting they can first of all go thumbs down on the image i don't like it take it off you know but you that, that hardly ever happens but usually it's more you're trying to kind of show what it is that you're trying to do with the person that you're that you're working with and it creates more of a cooperative relationship between you as the photographer and, and the person in front of the camera so you know digital has, definitely has this has its advantages let's take a look at the uh the photos you know one of the things that comes from being a labor organizer and a working person is that you appreciate the you appreciate people's hands because i think hands show you the history of work the person has done and so these uh, this is a typical David Bacon hands picture. I have told many, many, many people to do this with their hands. Just put them in front of you like this so I can take a picture of them. And um, so these in particular are the hands of a man named Carlos Chavez. And Carlos is a uh, palmero or a date worker and worked up in the date palms. And so, you know, here we're looking at what the, what the impact of the work is, you know, the lines in his palms, and also kind of like the clothes he's got on, you know, the jeans and the work shirt. And, um, and you can just sort of see his life as a farm worker as illustrated by, you know, by his hands. This is sort of a classic date palm palmero photograph. Um, and it shows you a little bit about what the work of, of day palm workers is this, in this case, this is a friend of Carlos, um, Jose Cruz Frias. And what he's doing is he's climbed up um, this ladder to the top of this tree. So he's about 30, 35 feet off the ground at least. And he is um, doing a work up there that is pollinating the, the, the date um, bunches as they first appear, um, you know, dates are a fruit. And so in order to get the fruit, you have to have the um, flowers pollinated and date palms are, are male and female. And so what he's doing is he has a pouch of, of um, pollen that's attached to 
his belt and he goes around and he has this little squirt thing and he he squirts pollen onto the flowers there and this is one of eight different operations that have to go on up at the top of the trees in order to get them to produce a crop of dates and it's um it's very dangerous work you can see that he's walking on the fronds themselves um not wearing a safety belt you know i don't know what osho calosha would think about this but you know this is what this is how that work gets done and it was this is sort of the traditional way um these days a lot of the date farms are using cherry pickers with a particular platform now that workers can stand on that raises them up to the level of the trees so that they don't have to climb the ladder and and walk around on the fronts any any longer although that also has its dangers too you know there have been some deaths of as a result of um some of the cherry pickers hitting power lines that run close to the trees so it's it's dangerous work whichever way it's done and um you know uh jose was doing this work for about 15 years at the time that i took this photograph which is i think six or seven years ago and it's one of the funny things about it too is also the way workers look at it there's a lot of pride that people have in doing it. this is not the worst paid work in farm labor because it takes you know you have to pay somebody a pretty you know, decent amount of money by their standards in order to get them to go up into the trees and do this. And um, and so the workers, they they say, you know, because almost all the date palm workers in Coachella Valley, like almost all the farm workers in Coachella Valley, period, are Mexican. And they say, well, only a Mexican has the courage to do this work. And so it's a way of <laughs> talking about their pride and the fact that they're willing to, you know, confront these dangers and, and do this work. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM. We're talking with photojournalist, author, political activist, and union organizer, David Bacon. He's got a photo exhibit opening today in Riverside, California, working Coachella images of the farm worker community of the Coachella Valley. You can see some of the photographs on our website, laborheritage.org, and on our Facebook page, just search for Labor Heritage Foundation. Well, this is a, a picture of, of um, a man named Armando. Um, I was taking pictures of workers in a field um, picking grapes, and I asked him if I could take it, his, his photograph. Uh, and partly what I wanted to show here was um, an intimate look at part of what it takes to pick grapes. You know, you have to, first of all, cut the, vine, the the bunch of grapes off the vine, but then because these are table grapes, you have to clean the bunch. And so that means you have to get out of it, you know, the unripe grapes or the raisins, the ones that are dried up and turned to raisins. You have to create this, you know, picture perfect bunch of grapes that somebody's gonna wanna buy in the supermarket. So it's a skilled job, you know, farm workers is skilled work. And so here's Armando, an older man. You can just see by his hands how old he is. This is another hand picture, really. And um, so he's been doing it a long time. He knows how to do this work. And it's a skilled work. And so, and in a way, he is sort of like almost lovingly holding the bunch of grapes here, you know, while he while he trims it. And so it's also about his relationship to the product of his labor. You know, the, the bunch of grapes and, and what he's doing at it. And, and when you go into the supermarket and you see that perfect bunch of grapes sitting there in the produce section, 
Um, this is what it took to get it there. I still get very moved by this picture because in a way, this is a, a picture of Rosendo Rivera and his children. You know, so in a way it's about his love for his children and their love for him. And, um, and it's just, you know, to me it's, it has this emotional feeling to it. But the story of the picture is that also that I was taking pictures of um, people living in a trailer park in the Coachella, the Sunbird trailer park, where people were having a big fight with the management of the trailer park over the water um, because they were being charged an enormous amount of water money for the water that they needed. And um, the water was contaminated and there was a big struggle over providing arsenic-free water. And so that's how I met him is I was sort of going through with people from California Rural Legal Assistance who were doing the legal cases for them. And they said they knew about this guy who was you know, part of their suit and would I like to meet him? I said, sure. And we went over to his trailer and, and started talking. And Rosendo's story was that he had been a farm worker and not had any health insurance. And then he had um, gotten a better job, which was to work on one of the many golf courses you know, Coachella Valley is, is next to Palm Springs, which is a very wealthy community. And there are golf courses all over the place in, in Palm Springs. And they are union. Almost all those golf courses, in other words, the people who do the maintenance of the mow the lawns and do all the rest of the maintenance are members of the laborers union. And so he got a job at a golf course with the laborers. And that meant that he had medical insurance. And so when he began having um, health problems and needed an operation, um, he had medical insurance because of the fact that he had a union job. And so um, this is also about, you know, what happens when you have a union and you can get health care when you couldn't get it before. And in a way, it's also part of the story of farm workers that the way to get health care is to not be a farm worker anymore and, uh, you know, get a job um, working in a golf course. But it, to me, it's also, I just... You know, it's the light in this picture that I like, the way it came in through the window in his trailer and the way his kids went next to him to kind of show their love for him and, and his love for them. Well, it's been a real treat, David. The photographs, of course, are, are wonderful. The uh, the exhibit opens uh, this Thursday, I believe, right? That's right. Uh-huh. We'll be open in, in Riverside. So if you're anywhere east of Los Angeles, come out on uh, 4.30 p.m. and the Civil Rights Institute of Inland Southern California and uh, help us celebrate these photographs. Oh, congratulations and, and thanks for spending uh, being so generous with your time with us today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. You know, um, I love talking about it and I love taking the pictures and thank you for paying attention to them and to having me on. David Bacon's exhibit, Working Coachella, opens today at the Civil Rights Institute in Riverside, California. There's an opening reception from 5 to 8 p.m., and David will lead a tour tomorrow at 5 p.m. Complete details on our website, laborheritage.org. Hey, this is Errol Schweitzer, host of The Checkout Podcast. The Checkout is proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight. 
In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down Most of us, when we make our New Year's resolutions, make just a few. Cut back on alcohol, eat healthier foods, exercise more. Woody Guthrie made 33. The iconic folk singer wrote out the New Year's rulings over two pages of his journal in the careful, neat handwriting of a man who once painted signs for a living. Each of the resolutions is illustrated with quick little line drawings. Labor historian Julie Green, professor of history at the University of Maryland and a past president of LACHA, the Labor and Working Class History Association, posted Woody's resolutions on her Facebook page. So I called her up to chat about what these resolutions reveal about the man behind the legend and what they say to us today in 2024. So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the allies, the whole wide world around. To the battling British thanks, you can have 10 million yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. And I don't know that much about Guthrie, but I looked up, kind of reminded myself quickly of his biography and You know, he was going through a lot when he was writing this. It was 1943. He was, I guess, at that point, he was serving in the military, uh, fighting fascism. His marriage had dissolved. I think he had recently fallen in love with a dancer with the Martha Graham Dance Company. So, you know, his life was kind of a roller coaster at that point. And Maybe this was sort of an exercise to try to get his whole life a little bit together. And maybe you could describe the physical artifact, because it's not just a list. I mean, if you could describe it for folks. Yeah, I mean, it's a really wonderful little document. It's two pages of his journal. I guess he kept a journal regularly, and and so it's about gosh, 30 or so, 25 different resolutions. And and next to them are little drawings of things he's going to do. And so, and it's, you know, to me, one of the striking things about it is that it's, some of them are very lofty goals, like help win the war and beat fascism. and But some of them are so prosaic and mundane, like, be, you know, be nice to mama, uh, brush teeth every day, write a song a day, you know, very, very simple life goals. I noticed that too. And I I wonder if you could sort of talk about that a little bit, because I I thought, you know, this is a list that has fight fascism and shave in the same list. And (laughs) and And I thought, well, yeah, those. I mean, and 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 I was thinking, you know, today, of course, in twenty four, we're we're worried about you know the election, but I still need to floss every day. So I thought, well, maybe Woody might have had something there. 
Absolutely. I think I think about this a lot. The times we're living through give me new perspective on what life must have been like in the 1930s and 40s. Because, you know, when I study that history, I think about these huge global titanic struggles, Hitler and fascism and labor rights, people struggling for full labor rights. And, and I forget that, you know, people still had to worry about brushing their teeth and wearing clean socks and stuff like that. Like we do today, we were, we're struggling through the rise of fascism in the U S but we still want to live our lives and have teeth that <laughs> don't need dental help, you know? So, so that's really reflected here is his, his resolutions kind of go back and forth. You know, it starts out work more and better work by a schedule. While we're on the subject of hard work, I just want to say that I always was a man to work. I was born working and I worked my way up by hard work. I ain't never got nowhere yet, but I got there by hard work. Work of the hardest kind. I've been down and I've been out. I've been disgusted and busted and I couldn't be trusted. I work my way up and I work my way down. I've been drunk and I've been sober and I've been baptized and got hijacked. I've been robbed for cash and I've been robbed on credit. Work my way in jail and I work my way out of jail. Woke up a lot of mornings, didn't know where I was at. And then there's like this flash of humor. He says, wash teeth, if any. (laughs) (laughs) Shave, take a bath, eat good. Drink very scant, if any. I think a lot of us can relate to that. You know, it's dry January for a lot of people. Um, So, yeah, it kind of goes back and forth between these really lofty goals and and simpler, more prosaic things. I mean, you know, you say Woody Guthrie and everybody thinks, you know, all the classic songs. And on this list, it's not until number eight, write a song a day. I mean, I would have thought that'd be top of Woody Guthrie's list. Yeah, you know, I think if we added them all up, it's really the more so almost like personal hygiene kinds of things <laughs> that are that are dominant here, you know, because he gets to number eight, write a song a day. But then right after that is like wear clean clothes and look good and shine your shoes, change socks, change bed clothes often. So, you know, I don't think of Woody Guthrie as thinking about having to change his sheets often, <laughs> but but there he is. Um, and then read lots of good books, listen to radio often. That's really interesting. He's telling himself right along with, he wants to read more books. He wants to listen to the radio. So he wants to be an educated worldly man on top of what's happening in the world. And then this next one, learn people better. And and that was so fascinating to me because he traveled all over the country. He he was somebody who listened to people. And so is this an artifact of his earlier days or, or, or what does this evoke for you? Yeah, I love that one. It's almost sort of philosophical, isn't it? Learn people better. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you're right. He's He's making a living by listening to people and hearing their hard luck stories and turning that into music. And yet there's a a level at which he wants, he wants to do it better. He wants to think harder about people and think about 
what it means, what they're telling him a little bit more. This is a word that they never would have used then, but, you know, he's so intentional about it. Yeah. I mean, you think about all those songs he wrote, and then you look at this list, and, I mean, he must have been a thoughtful, as you put it, intentional guy. He He's really thinking about his own life and how he wants to relate to other people, both, you know, the people in his family. Later down in the list, he says, you know, number 28, love mama, 29, love papa, 30, love Pete. Don't forget 31, 31, love everybody. Yeah, I love, I love yeah. that the, the sequence. It's almost like a song. I mean, you can see where yeah. he's going with it, right? Yeah, yeah, really. It's amazing. And up above, send Mary and kids money, his divorced wife and their kids. I want to go back up to the original list. After learn people better, he goes back to the prosaic with keep Rancho clean. But then the next one, and this one somehow made me a little sad. Don't get lonesome. Yeah, I wonder about that one because I I don't I don't know that much about him as a personal guy. But you know, in these years, he's surrounded by people. This is when he's buddies with Pete Seeger and Lead Belly and that whole crew, the Almanac singers, and um, but there must have been a, a side of him that still had to think about really connecting with people. Well, and I guess maybe putting your historian hat on now, I mean, it, it makes me think, and you know, again, this is a guy whose songs we've heard, many of us who have, have read, you know, his, you know, his, um, his book, um, but it, this sort of hints at another Woody, maybe. Yeah, this is still early, and and um, so I mean, his health issues didn't, I don't think, really happen till later. Uh, even the earliest signs of it, I think, come about later. Um, but you know, I think. I think that if you think about the whole pattern of all of the resolutions, it sort of goes back and forth in this way from the prosaic to really almost philosophical. Um, because right after Don't Get Lonesome, he says, stay glad. And then right after that, keep hoping machine running. Yeah, I saw that and, and I think I know what he means, but what, what's what's your read on that? Keep hoping machine running. I think he means like that machine inside of us that keeps us hopeful about the world. I think, you know, he's fighting fascism in the United States and in Europe. And life must have looked awfully dark a lot of the time. Um, so I think he's telling himself, stay glad, keep keep hope alive, we would say now. You know, right. you know, the great Studs Terkel, who ran a radio show for decades, undoubtedly he and Woody knew each other. As he did his radio show through McCarthyism and everything, every single show he would end it by saying, take it easy, but take it, <laughs> you know, be tough, fight fascism. Maybe Woody would be saying to himself, but keep hope, keep hope going. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private 
property But on the back side it didn't say nothing This land was made for you and me When the sun comes shining Then I was strolling And the wheat fields waving And the dust cloud rolling My voice was chanting As the fog was lifting This land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land California to the New York Island, Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. And again, it made me reflect on the times that we're living through. I was thinking about this, you know, it's the time of year when everybody says Happy New Year. And everybody seems to be saying it was sort of a little bit of a, almost a question mark in it, Julie. You know, <laughs> because we know it's going to be a tough year. And maybe this is why these resonated so much, these resolutions, even though they're from so long ago. They, they seem to resonate with us even more so this year. What do you think? I think so. You know, like we said, it's... Uh... He has these hopeful bits amidst, you can tell the context is a is a dark one. Um, I mean, it's so neat how right after Keep Hoping Machine Running, number 20 is Dream Good. But then again, it's back to the prosaic, which is Save Dough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bank all extra money and save dough. And, right. and then number 23 kind of goes back to the issue of don't get lonesome. He says, have company, but don't waste time. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that one kind of had me puzzling about that. That makes sense, but it's a little almost judgy, right? Yeah, well, that and and if you go back up to number seven, drink very scant, if any. Those kinds of messages make you think he's trying to sort of pull party boy Woody Guthrie into line a little bit. Mm, mm, okay, that makes sense. 25, we get back to to the Woody we know, play and sing good. He's kind of setting the bar there for himself. Right? Not great, <laughs> or not be a big pop star, play and sing good. <laughs> and then dance better, 26. That's great, too. And then we go to 27, help win war, beat fascism. Yeah, that, you know, that's the one that really jumps out at people, especially given the days we're living through now. And, you know, this was about the time, I think, that his, he had his guitar saying, this machine kills fascists. Give us the last two to wrap this up. And, and I, I just think the last two I love. I just do. Yeah. Number 32, make up your mind. <laughs> and number three, wake up and fight. That's so great. I mean, the whole thing is like poetry, really. Mm-hmm. It really is. I never thought of it that way, but I can just imagine him sitting down saying, all right, what what are my resolutions for 1944? Okay, I got to work more and better. Number two, work by a schedule. And then, oh, well, let's talk about my teeth. You know, it, it just, it really rolls like a, a poem. So just to wrap up, Julie, putting on your labor historian hat, you posted this to Facebook, so this is not random. What was your intention, and, and do you have any resolutions? Well, you know, I had, um, I've had i posted it a few times before. I think 
it is just a beautiful document. Um, it kind of it takes us into Woody Guthrie's head and 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 takes us into 1943 in such a beautiful, beautiful way and powerful and yet kind of charming at times humorous. So I love it for all of those reasons. I love it for the sort of sense that the everyday matters, even when you're living through dark times and that you want to help win the war and beat fascism and fight hard every day. But you also want to keep hope going, keep the hope and machine running, dream good, don't get lonesome, stay glad. You know, I, I think we can all kind of relate to those. My personal resolution is beat fascism. Well, Julie Green, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you uh, reminding us of, of this and, and taking time to talk about it and uh, take it easy, but take it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Better words couldn't be said. Really fun talking to you, Chris. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Put a there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. This is Kim Reed from OEA Grow. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1914. Two men were killed during a grocery store robbery in Salt Lake City, Utah. Their murders were blamed on Joe Hill, a Swedish-American labor activist, songwriter, and member of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblies. Hill had risen in the IWW organization and traveled widely across the United States. He organized workers under the IWW banner and made many speeches. He was most well-known for his writing of political songs and satirical poems. He frequently approached 
appropriated melodies from religious songs of his time because they were pretty, but he changed the words so they made more sense. His songs included There Is Power in a Union and Rebel Girl became staples at labor meetings and rallies. In one of his songs, The Preacher and the Slave, he coined the phrase pie in the sky. After the grocery store robbery, Hill was convicted of murder and executed by firing squad. His final word to his executioners, fire. Later, evidence proved Hill was framed for the murders. Just before his execution, Hill wrote a letter to fellow IWW leader Big Bill Haywood. His words have been often repeated at labor meetings. He wrote, goodbye, Bill. I die like a true blue rebel. Don't waste any time in mourning. Organize. Hill became a martyr for the cause of working people. His body was cremated in Chicago, and envelopes of his ashes were sent to every state but Utah and all around the world to be ceremoniously scattered. 2015 marks the 100th anniversary of Joe Hill's execution, and the Illinois Labor History Society will partner with labor groups and artists to honor the legacy of Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, here ten years Labor History in 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in 2. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. Our music today included De Colores, the unofficial anthem of the farm worker movement, sung here by Joan Baez, Brown-Eyed Children of the Sun by Daniel Valdez, and from Woody Guthrie, Tear the Fascists Down, Talking hard work, this land is your land, and all you fascists bound to lose. The Labor Heritage Foundation's annual MLK Gonna Take Us All Ball is coming up this Sunday, January 14th, 7 to 11, at McGinty's in Silver Spring. Tickets are free, but you must RSVP, laborheritage.org, click on calendar, and we'll see you Sunday. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show is produced by me, Chris Garlock, and engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement.
From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Thursday, January 11th. Here are some headlines. Congress is running out of time to agree on a budget deal for the federal government and avoid a partial government shutdown. Funding for roughly 20% of the federal government expires on January 19th. The rest of the government's funding expires on February 2nd. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Democrats agreed over the weekend on spending levels for the new year, but now some Republicans in Congress say they're willing to let the government shut down if Democrats don't meet their demands for deeper cuts and tough new border policies. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle said Tuesday that government may need to enact a stopgap spending measure known as a continuing resolution that will extend current funding levels possibly into March and give lawmakers more time to negotiate. In more political news, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie ended his long-shot political campaign yesterday in what could be a major boost to Nikki Haley's chances in the upcoming New Hampshire primary, where Haley is gaining on Trump. During his campaign, Christie repeatedly criticized former President Donald Trump, and he often said that his reason for running was to prevent a Trump presidency. Speaking to a town hall in New Hampshire last night, Christie acknowledged that there was no path for victory for him in the state and restated his intent to stop Donald Trump from winning a second term. Quote, I'm going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again, and that's more important than my personal ambition, close quote. In economic news, Amazon and Google on Wednesday announced hundreds of layoffs, the latest sign that tech giants are trying to reverse their overexpansion during the coronavirus pandemic. Amazon, which has cut 27,000 employees since late 2022, is laying off hundreds of workers at its studio division and its subsidiary, Twitch. Google said it was cutting hundreds of employees in divisions, including Google's assistant program and hardware and internal software tools. Tech companies laid off tens of thousands of employees last year as consumers continued their return to normal life after the end of the coronavirus crisis, which had forced them to work, play, shop, and study online, sparking a boom for the tech industry. And the UN's International Court of Justice began a public hearing today in a case brought by South Africa against Israel. On the first of two days of hearings, South Africa accused Israel of subjecting Palestinians to genocidal acts and demanded that the UN's top court order an emergency suspension of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Israel will present its case tomorrow in response to these allegations. The court is expected to rule on possible emergency measures later this month, but will not rule at that time on the genocide allegations. Those proceedings could take years. 
The ICJ's decisions are final and without appeal, but the court has no way to enforce them. And in weather today, in New York City, it is 51 degrees and sunny. And in Washington, D.C., it is 50 degrees and sunny. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin.